So basically, when I came back to the UK after, especially after Chris's body was repatriated and all the funeral had happened, then I started to really experience PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, Mm -hmm. flashbacks. I mean, really multi-sensory flashbacks and panic attacks on a daily basis, intrusive thoughts, huge anxiety. And it was really debilitating. And I went to the GP to ask for some support. And I was sent to see a psychiatrist rather quickly, which was great. So I sort of, you know, really spilled my story out to the psychiatrist, thinking that this was the start of my support journey. And at the end of it, I remember saying, okay, so what happens next? Do I come next week? And I remember him saying, oh no, this is just a preliminary and initial consultation. You'll now have to go on a waiting list. I was like, oh, how long will that take? And he said, well, at least 18 months, at least. I was blown away and I remember saying to him did you not just hear what I've told you you know I had to crawl over dead bodies I had to I've just lost the love of my life and he just said Miss Hill you're not the only person in Swansea unfortunately suffering from mental health. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018, in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Stephanie Hill is an emotional wellbeing practitioner and learning and development specialist with 20 years experience. She works internationally with United Nations agencies and international non-governmental organisations, as well as charities, NHS organisations and local government in the UK. In 2004, she was working in Southeast Asia when the Boxing Day tsunami hit, tragically killing her partner and leaving her and her family with life-threatening injuries. On returning to the UK to heal from post-traumatic stress disorder, she was offered the choice of antidepressants and a waiting time of at least 18 months for counselling. Frustrated by the powerlessness she felt in not having the support she needed, Steph decided to play a proactive role in her own healing journey through studying different therapeutic approaches, including mindfulness, cognitive behavioural therapy, neuro-linguistic programming and hypnotherapy she was eventually able to overcome her debilitating symptoms and emotionally thrive. Now director, trainer and therapist with Happy Headwork, in this special New Year's edition of the Women of the Future podcast, I had the pleasure of finding out more about this remarkable woman. So I grew up in South Wales in a little village um, near the Gower Peninsula. I had an idyllic childhood to many extents. I grew up with my, my brother or my mum and dad, um, had a lovely bunch of friends and our, our playgrounds were the fields and woods behind our houses. And um, even from an early age, I sparked this interest for social justice, really. And I was always quite interested in what was going on in the world around me. So I remember I was reflecting on this just a couple of weeks ago and I remember when I was my son's age around six years old 
hearing a story in the school assembly about Mother Teresa and her work in Calcutta. And I remember that that was like this point in my childhood that all of a sudden I got really interested in, mm. in what was going on in the outside world. And then from that, I always remember my hero was Kate Adie. The, the foreign correspondent <laughs> and I always used to say that oh, I wanted to be a journalist and I wanted to be like Kate A.D. and I was I was very much interested in current affairs and what was going on and I remember the first time I could vote being really excited about having the ability to be able to go and vote now and not just voting for the same political party because my family voted for them but wanting to know all of the manifestos of all the different parties and really laboring over my choices it's interesting that the Mother Teresa thing sticks in your mind because as we grow, we do have some weird memories, don't we, of our childhoods yeah. and like first memories as well. But for that to be particularly poignant and pertinent for you and then to, you know, go on to think about the wider causes and how things are affecting society, that's a really young age, really, to have mm. those founding thoughts running through your head. It was, I think some of that was as well, that our next door neighbours, they were Christian missionaries. Although I am not Christian myself, I was always quite inspired by the stories mm. that what I used to call Uncle John he used to tell <laughs> me when he used to come, you know, come back to live in the UK for short periods. And I used to be quite sort of, you know, mesmerised by all mm. of these things. So I think that there was always that kind of going on in the background. So that's probably why I connected so much then to that, that Mother Teresa story, yeah. the school assembly, you know, and how it triggered it. Yeah. It's amazing how much influence something like that in your formative years can have. It's really quite extraordinary. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. What were you like as a student? Were you hardworking, diligent, a bit of a jack of all trades? Did you like school? <laughs> I, I loved school. Um, it had its ups and downs for me. Um, I mean, I was bullied quite a bit in comprehensive school by the way I looked. And so that was a little bit difficult for me at times. But I also had a really good circle of friends and I enjoyed I enjoyed studying. I enjoyed certain subjects more than others. But I, yeah, I enjoyed it. And and then I went off to university and I thoroughly enjoyed university for, for many different reasons. <laughs> was it the social side as well as the education side? What was the highlights for you? Well, I went to university twice, actually, and they were quite starkly different experiences for me. So when I did my bachelor's in the late 90s, I loved the learning, but I was I was 18. It was my first time away mm -hmm. from home and I got quite heavily involved in social activism outside of the classroom. Oh, right. OK. And that. That really, you know, I love that. I was surrounded by people, both other students, but also local people who were really inspirational to me and just creative. And it was a really exciting time. I went to a university in Luton and there was quite a lot of deprived areas around Luton mm. and um, my peers and myself created a sound system and um, we used to put on events to sort of raise money for different causes but also kind of just to bring people together in the community and create a sense of cohesion and it was fun there was a lot of fun I think there was Definitely a lack of focus on the academia at times, <laughs> which I could have improved. But then later on in my life, then in my late 20s, I went back to university to do an MSc in disaster management. And that was a completely different experience. I was far more both financially invested in, in yeah. the degree and also emotionally invested in, in that degree for reasons of experiences that had led me to do the degree. 
And I, I always say, I've said many, many times, that if we gave ourselves a few years after college at A-levels and just to get our heads together, have a proper think about what's meaningful to us, what we want out of life, what gets us going, then we would all choose probably a different degree maybe but also like you might not even choose to do a degree you might choose something more vocational or something along those lines did that ring true for you yes absolutely I think and I see this quite a lot to people because um often friends and colleagues will come to me with questions about their career and um for mm. a bit of support often people find it difficult to make these decisions about their career because they feel like when they subscribed to a certain trajectory then they mm. have to stay with it I always say to people, do you know what, just follow your heart and your heart can change and directions can change through life. And that's okay. You don't have to pigeonhole yourself. Be greedy in a good way about what you, <laughs> what you want to learn about and what you want to experience, yeah. you know? And I think that's that's something that I, I feel really quite passionate about in my own life, but also when I'm supporting others with theirs as well. It's just sort of let go of that pressure that, mm. that we have to stick with that particular trajectory. You've touched on it already, but in 2004, you were working mm. in Southeast Asia when something completely life-changing happened mm. to you and the world, really. But can mm. you tell me more about how you came to be working in Southeast Asia in the first instance and then maybe take it on from there? Yes, absolutely. So after leaving university, myself and my partner at the time, Chris, we went to work overseas. We went to work as teachers, um, English language teachers. It was our first job out of university. And we spent 18 months working in Taiwan, which was wonderful. Mm. Um, and then after that, then we were traveling and working across the rest of Southeast Asia. And then we were kind of just, our plan was to, from there to go then to South America. And we kind of working our way around the world as, as lots of graduates did at that time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were there and it was Christmas time in 2004. My family, my brother, my mum and dad flew over to meet us in Taiwan. Island and we went to KPP and Boxing Day morning the tsunami hit and we were all in three different bungalows and it completely wiped out our bungalows and as a result of it um, we were all really badly injured and unfortunately Chris lost his life and um, yeah so, so Chris was killed during the tsunami. Steph I can't even it makes me quite tearful just hearing you talk about oh, it sorry. get myself together I just don't apologize <laughs> I should be um, consoling you oh, I'm... Can. <laughs> I'm... no it's fine don't oh. worry it's a, lo- a lot of time has passed it's okay yeah, don't worry. and yeah. as much as I don't want you to necessarily revisit that too much hmm. what were your feelings at that time I suppose directly in the aftermath but then also what that meant for your life moving forward so my feelings, uh, you know, initially when it happened and when I kind of, when I was still there and coming out of it, my initial feelings were just complete shock mm. and, you know, disbelief. Basically, Chris and I were in our bungalow at the time, my parents in another bungalow and my brother in the third bungalow. And we were laying in bed and basically the tsunami came and just wiped out the bungalow I felt myself break through two walls um, and then just caught up in a huge cement mixer of tsunami (laughs) 
and eventually that stopped and I sort of came out of of the rubble and what did you do in that moment did you have any thought process were you thinking what the heck is going on absolutely yes (laughs) I didn't think what the hell is going on absolutely um yes it was shock and through my head I was thinking what is going on and I was thinking I'm, I'm gonna die and I just remember feeling this sense of real disappointment oh, really? die at this point. <laughs> oh, really? yeah like I'm not ready wow. for this you know but it was weirdly calm but just disappointment but then through my head at the same time I was reminded of a documentary I'd seen on how to survive an avalanche <laughs> oh right okay it's like you <laughs> so, so I'm laughing so, this is really so surreal. random yeah. um, and um, I was able as I was in the turmoil to randomly move my hands in front of my face which is what you're meant to do in an avalanche to create a pocket of air not very useful in water really but what what it was but what it was useful with is um, I think protecting my face because I was covered in huge lacerations when I moved from the tsunami including my chin my my chin was kind of hanging off Um, but I think it would have been a lot worse had I not remembered that avalanche documentary it was useful Um, so yeah so when I emerged from the tsunami it was just a complete devastation all around me did you have Um, any awareness of where Chris was at this point no none Um, his body was missing for four months and and it was obviously incredibly difficult on many levels but I, I don't think I could kind of accept that he was gone. So, and people kept on being found for quite a few weeks mm. and, and miraculous stories of survival were emerging. Um, but eventually he was found and his body was returned to the UK on his birthday, on mm. what would have been his 26th birthday on, on April the 13th. Okay. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. So did you, you had clearly must have had periods of hope. Absolutely, that, that he might actually be found, and that there was this awesome, horrific dream in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Oh gosh, absolutely. It, the hope that he would be found um, was, you know, what I think what really powered me through the early stages of recovery because, you know, I had multiple fractures to my spine. The doctors had told my wow. brother that I may not walk again. Oh, I was goodness. covered in huge lacerations all over my body, and you know, I was in a bad way. I was in intensive care and having long operations every day eventually my family got reunited my father stayed in the south my mum and me and my brother were up in Bangkok in hospital getting treated and my father stayed in the south searching for Chris Um, but eventually my father's injuries were getting infected so he had to come and join us as well and then yeah eventually in January we were asked you know the British embassy said you know you're able now for us to move you so it's best that you go back to the UK and then leave the search and rescue to the experts so it's just it's hard to know where to take the story but obviously you your family do return to the UK and to heal from your trauma and the post-traumatic stress disorder you were put on a waiting list weren't you for mental health support and then that proved a trajectory to take you down a different path almost so can you talk us through that period of time yeah 
Yes, absolutely. So basically, when I came back to the UK after, especially after Chris's body was repatriated and all the funeral had happened, then I started to really experience PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. flashbacks. I mean, really multi-sensory flashbacks and panic attacks on a daily basis, intrusive thoughts, huge anxiety. And it was really debilitating. And I went to the GP to ask for some support. And I was sent to see a psychiatrist rather quickly, which was great. So I sort of, you know, really spilled my story out to the psychiatrist, thinking that this was the start of my support journey. And at the end of it, I remember saying, "Okay, so what happens next? Do I come next week? And I remember him saying, oh, no, this is just a preliminary and initial consultation. You'll now have to go on a waiting list. I was like, oh, how long will that take? And he said, well, at least 18 months, at least. I was blown away and I remember saying to him did you not just hear what I've told you you know I had to crawl over dead bodies I had to I've just lost the love of my life and he just said Miss Hill you're not the only person in Swansea unfortunately suffering from mental health issues <laughs> and I know laughable and, isn't it but it's well, true it's yeah. true though it's true yeah it's true I wasn't but it was just I remember just that feeling like a dagger to my chest at that oh. point you know and then him saying well, we can offer you some antidepressants in the interim. Now, my bachelor's degree was psychology. And so I had this background, this sort of foundational knowledge of psychology. So I knew a little bit about antidepressants and about trauma. Not I wouldn't say I was far from an expert, but I know a little. Mm. And so I thought to myself, do you know what? I don't want to go down the antidepressant route straight away. I'll keep those as a plan B if things get that bad, because I knew that there was consequences of taking those and longer term impacts of taking those. But also I was certain that I was not going to wait around for 18 months for someone to fix me. Mm. So I went on my own little journey with it. I took myself off. um, My first trip was to to a Buddhist retreat in the Scottish Highlands to learn about mindfulness because at the time mind mindfulness was still very much in the domain of buddhism at that point and then from from that then i went on to do cognitive behavioral therapy neuro-linguistic programming uh, and then hypnotherapy as well and and i'm now a a practicing and qualified hypnotherapist as as well in my career so um i sort of just took myself off on all these courses to learn Mm. about these things myself and then practice them and yeah so as i went on this journey i eventually i mean it wasn't a quick process it took years eventually was able to one by one sort of deplete and then eventually get rid of and be able to manage the symptoms of PTSD and get through it you know so so, well done you oh thank you thank you alongside that I was still kind of parallel to that mental health journey that I was going on parallel to it I was also creating a career for myself in disaster management so I mentioned that I went to university twice in my life and the second time was doing the MSc in disaster management and sustainable development in Newcastle and like I said it was a very different student experience because (laughs) I was not only financially invested but I was also really heavily emotionally invested in it so I worked three days a week teaching at an adult learning college and then the rest of the time I spent every waking moment at the university studying because I was just really driven on reflection I was putting an unhealthy level of pressure on myself at the time Um, but I was very much driven to sort of almost re-identify with myself through a sense of purpose this sense of sort of I need to make sense of this and I need to be part of creating social change to disaster management I just felt this huge drive to be part of it and I think a lot of it was driven by guilt 
guilt was driven by survivor's guilt. And I normally ask, as part of this mm. podcast, obviously, is there a standout moment that <laughs> you would say has helped mould your interest to where you yeah. are? And I think it's very clear what that was for you. But I suppose across your emotional well-being journey, the next question that I normally go on to ask is across all of the work that you've done, is there any one thing in particular that stands out for you? And I know that through now your career in learning and development in humanitarian response and international development, you have also worked internationally with the United Nations and international yeah. NGOs. And that for me, from what you've been through and the wellbeing journey to get you to this point, that's phenomenal. But I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth. What is your proudest moment, would you say? So in terms of, yes, it's obvious that the tsunami was that kind of inspiration for my career, but my career has taken these two paths now that, that run alongside each other and also interweave with each other. Mm. So first of all, part of what I still do is I'm a consultant. I'm a learning and development consultant. So I work in developing capacity development projects, training courses, and also evaluating the impact of projects on communities. And the drive for that, I said about how I was motivated to do the MSc by guilt. Yeah. That survivor's guilt was not just about the sort of survivor's guilt I felt about surviving and my partner dying, but it was the guilt of the disparity that I saw. It was the guilt that the tsunami impacted on different individuals and different communities. In the recovery process, is that what you mean? Just In everything. Access to Impa services. Impact and recovery. Right. Um, depending on sort of many different socioeconomic and cultural and political and even you know, and gender aspects. To give you an example of that, more women died. You know, there was a disparate number of women that died compared to men. Oh, really? Um, which was impacted on things such as their cultural clothing that they were wearing, making it more difficult for them to actually wear to a place of safety yeah. or in some communities women weren't allowed to leave the house without a man yeah. so we're kind of like in the home and not able to go off to a place of safety things like little nuanced things in our society that impact on disparity to the impact of disasters is staggering you don't and think I, of things like that either my brain wouldn't have taken me there but now that you've obviously mentioned yeah. it it's like wow that's a whole other kettle of fish isn't it it's, it's just it really Mind blowing. Now, now my brain didn't automatically go to that level of detail I must say but mm. I, it started thinking about that the moment I left Thailand because yeah. I was broken leaving Thailand but I was coming home okay I didn't get the mental health support that I needed mm. but I was coming home to a social system to support me in certain ways and yeah. a warm house and community and physical resources financial resources and all sorts of those things that helped me recover and I remember one of the men on the island gave my parents his last possession. He'd owned a camp shop on the island right. and it got completely desiccated. And my parents had to spend an extra night on the island. Myself and my brother were one of the first to be taken off because of the extent of our injuries. And um, my parents that night, this guy, his last living possession was his tent. Hmm. And he gave it to my parents, you know, oh out of God. kindness to protect them that evening and stuff. And just reflecting on the people, the amazing amounts of kindness that we were showing you know I could go on and on about some of the examples of it but then also reflecting that their experience in the aftermath was going to be a heck of a lot different to mine you know yeah. and starting to really think of why that was so that's when I talk about guilt I talk about it from that perspective and I remember my professor was the late 
great Phil O'Keefe, who unfortunately passed away last year, but um, Dr. Phil O'Keefe wrote a paper in the 70s called Taking the Natural Out of Disasters. Right. And that was kind of, you know, one of the catalytic papers or bits of research that happened to make people start thinking, we talk about natural disasters, but actually impact is measured by vulnerability. You know, the impact of a disaster on a community or something happening to a community in terms of how it hits the community itself, but also in the recovery process process and regeneration very much governed by socio-political and cultural factors I feel a bit ignorant because I just like I say you really kind of opened my mind and my vision to considering that as even a notion really because you don't out of sight out of mind right as soon as the headlines are over as soon as it's off the news agenda then the Mm. people directly affected people like yourself but also the other people that actually live in these communities have to Mm. pick up the pieces and Absolutely. The support and that like you say these really, really vulnerable people still need love and care and attention and the disparity is Abs- phenomenal. Absolutely. And also that disparity then kind of perpetuates even more vulnerability. So it makes people more vulnerable to other quote unquote disasters happening within their life or crisis happening with their life. So we know that there is a higher incidence of trafficking, for example, that happens when populations are displaced due to disaster. You know, people are forced to leave their homes and they're vulnerable, whether that disaster is a a quote unquote natural disaster, like a tsunami Mm. or earthquake, or whether it is a complex disaster such as war. And people People flee through desperation and through lack of choice and then they're more vulnerable to fall at the hands of despicable human traffickers and be exploited for example so it's so complex and interwoven and as you said we are so removed from it when the news turns off we'll go back to our cup of tea and digestive biscuit you know Uh yeah we do it's life isn't it it's not right but that's the way it happens So that was kind of the disaster management side of things. But then the mental health side of thing as well is that, again, it came back to I felt disempowered by the lack of resources that were available for me. And that frustrated me. And then went on my own journey with it, which was really hard. You know, Mm -hmm. there were times of real darkness on that journey of, you know, not knowing how I was ever going to keep going with it but somehow having this faith that I could having come through that then it really inspired me to want to support other people to be proactive in their journey because often when your mental health is suffering or your emotional health is suffering sometimes we just don't have the language to even be able to sort of articulate what's going on for us Mm -hmm. but also the symptomology around stress and stress-related conditions can be terrifying and terrifying because it's quite nebulous in nature so being able to understand it you know almost just give yourself a little bit of psychology training around what's going on and why that can be a really nice little foundation then from which to start supporting yourself but also a foundation to make other forms of therapy should you choose them more effective because you're more engaged in that intellectually you know as a human being so that's kind of how the mental health aspect of my work grew And the crossover between the two was that I was working through my work in disaster management with lots of staff responding to humanitarian crisis and seeing 
burnout, seeing the impact of this on staff because they weren't trained to manage their own emotional resilience. So um, that's the connect. <laughs> it's hugely inspiring to hear you talk like that. And I'm sure it's taken you years of work to get to this point, but you sound massively passionate and enthusiastic and driven by the work that you're doing, which is mm. something in itself. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel very privileged to be able to do it. It sounds awful, but I, I do say that I'm gloriously greedy with my work because I just do what I love. I, I love it. I love it. I absolutely enjoy it so, so much. So I now have the consultancy side where I still work in disaster management. It's more around working with the caregiving sectors in learning mm. and development, whether that's humanitarian response or working with the UN on trafficking or smuggling curriculum development projects. But also then I have another business, which is called Happy Headwork, where we work on on emotional well-being and predominantly staff well-being but more and more working with individuals and more vulnerable communities and I um yeah I do that with I have two great colleagues that work with me on that I'm a clinical psychologist and another fellow therapist. So where does your moment of pride come from out of everything that you've done because it's phenomenal where you are right now and everything that you've achieved but is there anything that stands out for you? I was asked this question um, a few months ago for a podcast and at the time I'd, I'd never been asked it before and at the time a specific event flashed into my mind and it was when I was working for the United Nations in Cambodia running a training program for law enforcement officers responding to human trafficking crimes and encouraging them and empowering them to be able to take a more gendered approach to it so by understanding the needs of different mm. women and men and so forth. And at the beginning of that training week, I was quite worried and, and shocked by some of the comments I was getting from some of the participants when it came to working with survivors of sexual exploitation, which, yeah, really kind of, yeah, like I said, worried me. Mm -hmm. um, but then throughout the week, we did some quite at the time it was quite risky on my part to do these activities with this particular audience because I was doing things such as guided visualizations and walkthroughs with okay. them and I remember the UN project manager twitching the first time I was doing it <laughs> what, is, what is she doing you know this is they were used to like death by powerpoint the, these I really, oh no. yeah. <laughs> and this, my, my training is definitely not that it's very collaborative and very participatory yeah but at the end of the week I was blown away because the participants had sort of opened up and I could see this kind of change in dynamic and through reflecting on their own cultural trauma and their experiences with that in their own lives they said at the end of the week when I asked what they were taking away rather than sort of investigative techniques um, per se the yeah. thing that really stood out for them was the shift in their empathy that they felt for survivors of trafficking mm, really and, and to me that was a real mind-blowing moment because mm. you know that empathy that change in empathy would drive them hopefully then to make other changes and keep growing in their approach that yeah. one would hope so Nick is that's the story I shared when I did the other podcast but then I really reflected on it afterwards and it was really nice to reflect I realized and I hope this doesn't sound egotistical but I realized that because of the nature of my work I feel a sense of pride Ooh. often like regularly and by that I don't just mean pride in the stuff that I do I do feel that but more often I feel pride of what I see in the people I work with and this sense of gratitude to have been part of their journey and people trust me to be part of that it's remarkable and I think 
it's finding what resonates isn't it it's finding how to get through to people and how to have the right kinds of conversations that actually impacts their way of thinking and like you say in the Cambodia example that's not watching a PowerPoint presentation that's actually walking through and it's finding those ways and also I don't think you'd ever sound egotistical Steph I think that's just (laughs) Uh, yeah that's not true but also it's interesting because the work with the women of the future program which is obviously what this podcast is for I was very lucky to go on an ambassadorial trip myself just literally just before the pandemic we were in trouble about whether we were going to be able to get back or not and those kind of conversations in countries like Cambodia because again I was a little bit naive and we met a lot of young women entrepreneurs we had round tables with NGOs we spoke to the UN and I felt a sense of ignorance because these women are hugely ambitious they're really career driven we had um, a chat with the woman who ran the national bank and you just Mm. think you need to have the same access to the things yes. that are going to help you thrive in this world. And it's just that they're at a disadvantage again, like we were speaking about before with the tsunami, but mm. having an insight and also from the work that you do, being able to actually have an impactful effect mm. on what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear your experiences with the women of the future and that as well, and, and your observations of that. So part of the wider project of the trafficking training that I was just telling you about, mm. the wider project, it was multifaceted. It was about gender and law enforcement. Part of it was how all law enforcement's work with survivors through a gender lens. But the mm. other side of it, it's all about how do they bring more women into law enforcement? Right. It's all across ASEAN. So Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, all, you know, many countries all across the ASEAN region and part of that was some interesting research around that that was done by colleagues of mine looking into those barriers and actually um, hearing the voice of the women through interviews and case studies around their journey and what they'd overcome to get into a very male dominated work environment you know and looking at those barriers whether those barriers are sort of cultural perceptions of who should be law enforcement officers and family perceptions of not wanting daughters to become involved in it for example but also then within the workplace itself as you you know as you can imagine the barriers are there for women progressing in that career I could literally talk to you all day but I have some (laughs) quick fire questions just so that we don't both keep chatting for too long but I don't know hopefully (laughs) the audience are enjoying this as much as I am here we go what would you describe as your greatest success my greatest success I think is the way that I've chosen to learn from challenges so when things have happened that the tsunami happened and I made a conscious choice that I'm going to learn from this and I'm going to grow from it and overcoming PTSD and then later on I became a single mum I left a very toxic and dangerous situation to become a single mum and I chose, I I was absolutely financially skint at the time. I had left my career in London and I chose to choose my own narrative with this, to choose my narrative around sort of what this is going to mean for me. And I wanted to carry on my career to grow it. I also wanted to spend as much time as humanly possible with my son. So I decided to start a business and to grow that and make it work for me. And so it's about the choices that I made to how to respond to the challenges and I think the greatest marker of that to to validate myself is how beautiful my son is now and how happy he is you know so 
yeah so sorry that's that's what I'd say is my success is that the approach that I chose and your greatest failure so I I have a difficult relationship with the word failure actually Mm. it just feels like I don't know this unnecessary way of lambasting yourself Um, so if I reflect I mean there are loads of things that I could have done a bit better or maybe choices I've made that led me to difficult situations Mm -hmm. absolutely there are lots to choose from but I don't really look back at them as failures per se failure is not a very nice word for me I I kind of take the approach of um I love there's an acronym which is fail to fail means first attempt in learning yeah (laughs) I I, 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 I'm a work in progress and I always will be so um yeah no I, I don't really sit with the word failure too much it's, yeah <laughs> I agree I'm with you I think it's just a step on the road to finding out more about yourself and your journey yeah, absolutely the mantra of women of the future is kindness and collaboration what does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life Oh, yes, you're speaking my language. (laughs) Kindness and collaboration are golden threads through everything I do professionally and I hope everything I do personally as well. So in the professional life, I like to take it this kind of step further you know with with kindness I like to sort of analyze it Mm -hmm. uh, and think about how it impacts at different on different levels so to give you an example the work that that I do sort of in the disaster management context is about looking what kindness looks like operationally you know how do we apply a human rights lens Mm -hmm. um, to how we work with communities impacted by trauma and disaster, but also then working with staff themselves, you know, largely through the work that I do with um, Happy Headwork. To give you an example, actually, just yesterday, I delivered a webinar with a women's rights organization on compassionate empathy with staff. And part of that was looking how we use compassionate empathy to essentially deliver services in a kind way, in a kind and considerate way, but also, looking at the risks of empathy on you as a practitioner and how to best practice kindness and empathy in a way that both serves the individual but also protects you as a practitioner so you're not more vulnerable to things such as stress and vicarious trauma so you know looking at kindness of course we should always be practicing kindness but what does that look like And what can be the impact of that on you as a practitioner as well? And also with kindness, sometimes there's this tendency to almost want to be a rescuer Mm. um, for some people. And that's not helpful for both either the practitioner themselves, but also the individual. Individuals need to be empowered. And that leads me nicely onto collaboration. So in The approach to both the humanitarian side of my work, um, but also the happy headwork side of my work, is we work in collaboration with people. It's not sort of, I'm the expert, you're the person receiving it. No, we are both in this space together and we need to work in partnership because imposed solutions do not work. Even if those solutions are well-intended, it's about collaborating and sharing ideas and exploration to make um, sustainable solutions, both on a project level, but also down to an individual level when you, you know, you can take that into the therapy room. Is there anything that scares you? Lots of things scare me. Um, 
from a personal perspective, I mean, my biggest fear is anything, you know, anything horrible happening to anyone that I love. Um, um, And I think that's quite heightened sometimes. I think that's a bit of a sort of a hangover from the tsunami in in a lot of ways. You know, my brain does love to catastrophize sometimes. (laughs) I think all of us do. I know I do. (laughs) Totally. But because I'm aware of it, I can spot it and then I can manage it really quickly nowadays. But I mean, yeah, society at the moment scares me. Why do human beings keep on making the same mistakes over and over and over again? And it scares me how how people can be so swayed towards having a sort of a negative narrative about other people and, and, and how how hate can grow so quickly in a population you know yeah engaging in misinformation and things like that it's very dangerous isn't it yeah yeah that scares me what's left on your to-do list lots (laughs) (laughs) lots and lots and lots um um, uh, (laughs) um, at the moment though um so we're um, currently in the final stages of developing happy headwork into um nitty interest company at the moment so that we can reach a wider audience and get more involved in research as well and one of the projects that we're hoping to work on we've designed is, is a project around working with survivors of domestic abuse Lots of the things out there at the moment, training courses for survivors of domestic abuse, focus on helping individuals to recognise coercive and controlling behaviour. But sometimes one of the unfortunate outcomes of that is it, it keeps survivors in a kind of victim narrative. Mm. Of course, it's really important that people recognise it. It's mega important. It's a foundation. Um, and then other things then sort of go that step further and move people into a survivor narrative. But we're interested in sort of building on to that and moving, yes, into the survivor narrative. But then if you stay in a survivor narrative, you're often kept in this narrative that keeps you connected to the trauma. Yeah. Um, so then moving on to a more self-directed narrative, empowering individuals to not just identify with the source of trauma, but to move into a place where they feel able to make choices on how to shape their lives moving forward. So that's something that where my head is spending a lot of time at the moment <laughs> is, is thinking about how to do that and partnering up with um, a couple of uh, interesting and brilliant organisations to, to work with on that. It sounds amazing. So let's hope so. <laughs> Steph, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. It's been a bit of a whirlwind, but in the most extremely overawing way just I can't believe everything that you've been through but everything also that you've become and it's hugely inspiring and yeah just a massive massive thank you really thank you so much Kim I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk with me thank you Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.